Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Greg Edge. And I'm Brad Hutnick. And we are both silviculturists with Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your host for today's show. It's a celebration, Greg. Nice horn, Bradley. Congratulations, everyone. You have officially survived another season of Silvacast. Right? Like, who thought we'd get to season two or even get to the end of season one. Not me. But 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 maybe this would be a good time to do a little reflection on mm-hmm. past conversations, uh, where we've been, where we're going. <laughs> you know, like, hey, maybe this is, you, this is like our own silviculture retreat with our listeners. And okay, so let's assume they can't be here with, with us in person. We're not in, we're kind of virtual anyways, but so we're going to channel them, right? So Greg, I don't know how we do I'm, that. I'm still stuck on silviculture retreat. Yeah, well, so now you're channeling at the silviculture retreat. So I don't know what I'm doing at the silviculture retreat. Hey, there's there's lots of uh, there's lots of frivolity, lots of alcohol. It'll be fun, Greg. It'll be fun. So uh, think. But what's the first question? I, I would start our retreat with something like, mm-hmm. "Why do you think?" <laughs> well. Uh, All right. So it's, you get it. You know what I mean? It's like we're sitting around. So, but first question, why do you think our listeners listen to Silvacast? I can only imagine. Well, I'm going to channel them here. And I think it's because maybe they don't want to admit it, but they're kind of like us, right? Like they, they love silviculture. Like they may hate that about themselves after this episode, but but they love silviculture. They like the, the science behind what we do. They like the challenges and the creative aspects of when we're out there managing a forest. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe they're probably like us too, because they, they recognize that we don't have all the answers. And so we need to talk about these things. We need to discuss, we need to share, we need to pass along the best ideas we can find. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, think about today, you know, like maybe in the past when you kind of knew what the future was going to look like, or you thought you knew the future was going to look like it was, it was good. But, but now we have all the challenges associated with climate change and with maybe some of our systems not working the way we thought they were going to, or other things. I, I just think it's super challenging and it makes it all the more important. Well, yeah, I think I definitely agree that we have to share resources and ideas um, across the board because because of all these challenges, right? And and I know that whenever I talk with somebody in another state or another country and about what they're doing, I always learn something that I can bring back. And so I think that's what we try to do here is just provide a forum for people to share ideas. Uh, and I also agree that silviculture is really important. Yep. And so it's, it's important work for us to be doing. And you only have to listen to the news or anything like that to hear how humanity is looking to our forest to help us solve a whole long list of problems. And you said it, Brad, like carbon sequestration and climate change, sustainable products that we can use, maintaining biodiversity. So it is important work. Yeah. Do you remember when, wasn't it Professor Nyland? kind of said that specifically he was like you know this is critical and important work and i think sometimes we just 
we skip past that because we have so many things going on, but there's that, there's a definite realization with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he said, uh, that was, that was professor in Ireland. Yes. Yeah. So, so that's why each month on Silvercast, uh, we try to bring you the listeners, a diverse set of guests from their perspective of researchers, but not only stuff that's happening, you know, in a lab, but also field foresters. And our topics range from the practical. So I know we talked about paper birch. We talked about Mm -hmm. Northern hardwoods. We talked about utility pole management, and then we can take that more broad approach. And I know we, we covered climate change in a recent episode. And so we're always trying to give you the listener ideas and tools that you can take to the field. Another thing we try to do, Brad, is encourage participation on Silvercast. The problem is that we don't often have enough time to get to all the questions and ideas that people send us. And so today on Silvercast, we're going to do a little catch up and talk about what's on your mind, the most interesting questions and ideas that we have received this season. As you said, we may not have all the answers, and we certainly don't. But we can talk about these topics and build on those ideas for future episodes. The comments that you've sent in this season, they're going to help us build this next season and the schedule and the topics we address, but also future seasons. Yep. So, Brad, are you ready to talk about maybe some of the favorite ideas and questions that have come in this season? I am. But first, today's episode of Silvercast is brought to you by SAF the Society of American Foresters. Since 1900, SAF has been the cornerstone of the forestry and natural resources profession. Its members are practitioners, researchers, teachers, advisors, administrators, and students who believe in advocacy, respect, science, honest communication, and professionalism. Join today to branch out and connect to this expansive network of professionals at eForester.org. Hey, Brad, I have an obvious question. We're cheap, right? Well, we are cheap, Greg. We are um, probably that's, that's. I don't know if it's a sin to be cheap, but well, but yes, we are. I don't think it is. We try cheap. to we try to live as cheaply as we can. But Silvacast is not free, so if you're interested in being a Silvacast sponsor too, please reach out to us at wfc at wsp.edu. Truth be told, not all of these questions came in the Dropbox directly. Sometimes we get them through other channels. Ooh, other channels, Brad. That sounds pretty mysterious. Yeah, well, we said we were channeling our, we were channeling our listeners right before. Yes. And so it's not like we need to discuss this in a cone of silence. Now, there's an old movie reference. So um, I'm not sure if everybody's going to get that, but what the heck. Uh, so that sounds good. Uh, let's get started, 86. Oh, nice. Nice. Okay, I'll start out. Nicole from Michigan asked us a whole series of really interesting questions, and probably each one of them could be an episode in itself. Uh, but here's a paraphrased version of a question that I thought was really interesting and something that I've been interested pretty much my whole career. And that is, how do silvicultural practices impact the genetic diversity of our forests? And how do we follow good genetic conservation practices? Yeah, and you're, you're kind of the expert on this one, right, Greg? Because you've actually done like your, 
your uh, post or uh, postgraduate work on on genetics, correct? I have, but expert is a really squishy term uh, yeah. used in this context. Well, uh, I'll just say, Brad, that population genetics was not my best class. Yeah. Well, and there's a long maybe... story that goes with that, but I'm not going to get into <laughs> yeah. it. Well, I'm on the opposite end of that because we had genetics in school. So maybe I'm getting more of mine from like, like, you remember that old uh, country tune? It was Loretta Lynn and Conway Twitty. Like, uh, you're the reason our kids are ugly. So that's, <laughs> that's where I'm getting my genetic experience that's, in this. That's, so, the t- <laughs> that's the title of the tune. Oh, it's good. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes <laughs> so everybody can go out and listen to it. That's really good. Um, okay. But so, Greg, I, my impression on this, though, is it's, it's complicated, right? So it's not just good looking trees are genetically good. It is. It's it's complicated. Uh, we know that our silvicultural pla- practices influence the genetic variation and structure of the forests that we're working with. And it's but it's a matter of how that influence happens and to what degree. So think about things we really have a big influence. I think about artificial regeneration practices. We certainly are selecting heavily from a population and growing a few of those genotypes within a nursery. So we're having a pretty significant impact, right, on the new forest that we would create. And you, you definitely wouldn't want to try to plant a forest and rely on, say, just four clones of some species. Right. When it comes to natural regeneration practices, I think that's really interesting because there it becomes less clear. We're not applying as strong a selection pressure by the practices we do in that forest. So I think in most cases, geneticists would agree that those forests are pretty resilient to that change, but we definitely are having uh, an impact on the genetics within that stand. And for better or for worse, depending upon our harvesting, right? Exactly. And we try to, you know, we try to select and leave the best from our perspective on what we would like to see that within that forest, hoping that we pass along genetics of that, those similar traits. Right. But again, as you said, Brad, it's not always as clear because a tree may look a certain way, but um, that may not be a full expression of its genetics because it's, it's, it's both the genetics, the environment and the interaction between the two that results in what we see or the phenotype of something. Right. So think about that tree could have gotten into, it could be just growing in the wrong place. It's never going to be able to yeah. express what it is, or maybe it's, maybe it's shade tolerant. And so maybe it, it just gets the advantage of being in the right place at the right time. You know, like when that release occurs, because you just have that sea of seedlings and you yeah. might not be the, the absolute genetic winner, but you're in the, you actually have some light. So you're going to be able to do okay. Yeah. And, and, and we, we can't tell all of that by just looking at a, a particular tree. Right. And then and I think about, you know, like with a lot of, and I, I have to think about this a lot, but like, even like wind, wind pollinated species, like, do you really know where dad is? right? Like mm-hmm. dad could be a mile or two away. You don't know who the other part of that pairing is. So, you know, but there has been some research in that area. And I think this would be, a, and we're going to say this probably multiple times, a great topic to delve into with yep. a real expert um, on a future episode. But 
there has been some long-term research. Uh, I know there's a paper from out east that's looked at the long-term impacts of diameter limit cutting versus selection systems and what how that has impacted um, the certain genetic markers within that tree. And basically they show that management long-term changes some things, like it changes the frequency of certain uh, alleles uh, right. within that population for better or for worse, because um, particularly alleles that are rare, they may not, they may cause um, traits that are desirable that we see today, or they may cause things that are undesirable in what we see today. Um, right. But the idea of keeping some of those rare alleles around is that maybe some future environment those genes will become important. So that's where kind of that gen genetic conservation comes into play. Yeah. Um, so, so how would you, we would summarize that by saying, you know, so we kind of like, we work toward maybe good structure, good form, but, but it's not, I mean, maybe you still want some of those other things around too. You don't, you don't have to eliminate like say uh, uh, bad phenotypes or bad looking trees in a stand. Well, I think we do, as you're saying, we try to strive for the seed sources and the trees that phenotypically we think uh, meet our goals and objectives. So they're the, generally the best, but there are ways that we strive for diversity within those stands, right? We, we look at things like retention or right. um, islands. Those can serve purposes beyond just wildlife goals. They could serve also genetic conservation goals as well. So I think there's some good management practices that we can employ to kind of keep that diversity and keep that variability uh, within those forests. Yep. So maybe the haiku answer is it's complicated and this would be a great topic for a future show. Yep. And that'll be the haiku for probably more questions. That's right. Austin from Stevens Point asks, is there any work being done in the Lake States looking at the use of silvicultural practice to accelerate or mimic old growth forest characteristics. So this is a really good question too. We can get back to maybe the accelerating or mimicking the old growth characteristics, mm -hmm. um, but quite some time ago, there were some parallel studies started with the Department of Natural Resources and uh, UW-Madison. Uh, one was an old growth study uh, looking at uh, certain factors involved with that management. And I think they were coming down to the idea that, um, you know, it was, it was essentially, um, gaps and CWD were kind of that distinguishing characteristic, at least in these Northern hardwood sites of how they were actually maybe not accelerating the, the, the structure, but they were, that was a key component of the structure on those sites. Mm -hmm. If you could supplied those, that would be tending toward maybe conditions that were closer to old growth, as opposed to uh, not doing that. Our moss study, and Greg, you're, you're probably familiar with that uh, mm -hmm. just as well as I am, but, but we were taking a parallel track, but looking maybe at the influence of of the size of the openings, maybe the regeneration that was occurring in those, the impact of the um, coarse woody debris that was left behind in those. Um, and so those are two places then they're really long. So those are both projected to be 50 year or more studies. So we're, we really haven't gotten all the answers yet. We're just in the, in the first stages of getting answers into those about how we can actually maybe mimic through our management what's happening in uh, systems that weren't really dependent upon man to produce the uh, disturbance in them. Yeah, that was the the moss or managed old growth study is really the 
best example that I was thinking of from Austin's question. And that's a really large study replicated over three different sites. As you said, it's in Northern hardwoods, uh, but it's, um, it has a lot of replication and uh, I hope long-term we're gonna learn quite a bit out of that. And we can put this in the show notes, Brad, but uh, there's a, a general technical report that really kind of summarizes to this point, what's been done, uh, what we've seen, and that's uh, uh, GTR uh, Northern Research Station 144. Yep. And the other one that comes to mind is is something that I've thought about a lot. Um, Craig, Professor Craig Lorimer at UW-Madison and his grad student at the time who's now, or who has been a forester for the DNR for quite some time, Matt Singer, did some work on accelerating the development of larger trees in old growth or mimicking that old growth characteristics of large trees. And they were basically looking at versions of release. So basically looking at, we think of release when maybe younger trees, smaller trees, they're looking at developing that structure as a part of the stand. And I think there were some really interesting guidelines about how you could integrate that into your, maybe not guidelines, but just things you could take from that, that you could integrate into prescriptions if that was one of the elements you were looking at, particularly in Northern hardwood stands. Was there a paper that came out of that, Brad? They did. And we'll, we'll have that linked in our show notes if people are interested in it. All right. A shout out to Matt Singer. Hey. Fellow grad student. Yeah. If he's listening. Yeah. If he's listening. Matt, yeah. you better be listening. Yep. <laughs> okay. Our next question is from Joe from Iowa. And he asks, what are the best silvicultural practices to grow hardwood veneer? Yep. And so, and well, and this is, this is a really good question too, because this is something that we always think about, right? Mm -hmm. Quality as a part of our management. So we can, I think sometimes we can produce volume and sometimes we can produce quality and sometimes we want to produce volume and quantity. And it's, and it, what's, is there an old rule? You can't really maximize two things, right? Because something has to give if you're going to maximize two of those, but here, is that a rule? Well, it is. I, well, someone can, <laughs> one of our listeners can correct us, but I, I believe it's a rule. It's actually, I know I can't multitask to optimize two things at the same time. So, so I'm going to just make it a rule because of that. <laughs> but, but uh, so the first thing I would ask in this one though, is it might, Greg, and you probably get this too. When we talk about hardwood, we mm -hmm. can be, we can talk about hardwood as Northern hardwoods, or we can talk about hardwood as not conifer. And so it, and, and it's probably, they're going to be similar answers, but they're going to be shaded if we talk, if we say it's just Northern hardwood versus say just not conifers. Yeah. And I imagine Joe here from Iowa is referring not necessarily to Northern hardwoods, although you do have some Northern hardwoods, but he's talking hardwoods broadly. Yeah. And they have some real fine hardwoods uh, in Iowa. So walnut would be a great example of that. Yep. And I know from talking to and, and, and thinking about this a lot and talking to veneer buyers, I know one thing they've always talked about is they like to see the even growth patterns throughout the life of that or their life of that tree if they're buying it. So they, that produces mm -hmm. a higher quality veneer. And so they always talk about if we could do it as foresters, avoiding swings in density so that you get a stand that's way overly stocked and then it's really opened and you can kind of picture your growth rings become much smaller and suddenly they become bigger mm -hmm. like five years out. And so I think they, 
you could think about keeping trees in almost like a Goldilocks zone, right? If you were using a relative density chart in a stand and you're managing on an even age basis, as an example, you know, if you'd want to keep it not close to the A line and maybe not super close to the B line, but kind of varying in between so that that growth is going to be really consistent over time. Mm -hmm. And so that might mean thinking about uh, regular interventions to produce that quality. So your interventions might not necessarily be to look at when am I going to maximize growth? It might be to sustain growth in those situations. Uh, not a lot of people do that though, right? We just kind of go out there and we, we schedule it every so often and we don't yeah. really look at what the increment's been in the past. Right. We don't think about that steadiness, at least I don't or haven't in the past. The other thing too, I, I just remember this um, statement from a veneer mill owner. We were at a meeting a long time ago and, uh, and he made a statement about time and the importance of time and that he has never seen a veneer log younger than 80 come through the mill. Yeah. Um, at least his particular mill. And just that really struck me because you always hear, you know, uh, statements about people trying to grow black walnut, for instance, on a shorter rotation, we're going to have saw logs in 50 years, but that may not be the kind of quality that we're right. looking for in veneer and what you say, Brad. Yep. Yeah. And, and so I think, I think that's right. So time is going to be that component and, you know, and thinking about it too, maybe it boils down to a, a couple of things as well. And it, it kind of bleeds over into, so it's, maybe it's just quality. But, you know, essentially we want that because of that, we're going to want these sufficiently large diameter trees. And we really want that restricted branchiness to those trees, right? And branchiness mm -hmm. is our technical term for, you know, just don't make them bushy, right? Mm -hmm. So if we can do those two things, however we're doing it, it ups our, or maybe our probability of producing some veneer in that stand. Mm -hmm. Now, some people, I remember, you know, remember it used to be a lot of people got into pruning, in young stands and did all sorts of stuff. And you really don't see as much of that anymore, but as long as you're getting that, that uh, shedding of lower limbs, kind of doing those things, either through actual practices you have to do or things that you can count on your stand management to do for you. I think that's good. An advertisement. Uh, and we should do this, Greg, because, because uh, again, we don't have all the answers on this, but this season we will be talking to a, this is one of our proposed topics coming up where we'll be digging into this a lot further. Yeah, just uh, when you were talking there, Brad, I was thinking about the importance too of the early years within us, uh, you know, the stage of a forest and the where we've gone in terms of trying to manage stocking in those young regenerating stands at much higher densities to get that self pruning that you're talking about, right? Um, and to get that really nice form in the, that butt log. And so, yeah, there's a lot to think about here from through all the stages of management that maybe we don't really think of with that lens of veneer in mind all the time. And we should look for somebody who can really speak to that. Yep. I think it's easy for us to veer into the world of produce a lot of quantity. And then we assume that the quality is going to come with and and I, you know, oftentimes we can see that's just not the case. So, but mm -hmm. I agree. We got to dig into this one. Good question, Joe. Tom from Massachusetts asks, how is variable retention harvesting implemented and or marked 
And how would one recognize that is being prescribed? This is a good question because we, we get yeah. questions about this all the time. Yeah. And we're implementing more of these types of systems and really thinking about, oh, how do we do this yeah. with a marking? And I've been part of group markings where we always joke that if we <laughs> want to do variable retention, just get four yeah. foresters together and it'll be, no matter what your yeah. prescription, everybody has preconceived ideas and it will all be different. Right. Don't give them any marking guidelines, just, yeah. uh, just general instructions and yeah, do what you it'll think be is right. Completely variable. Oh yeah. my God. But, but, but I think, but I think this is right because these prescriptions, we want to try and do this. And it's always that trick of operationalizing the idea. Right. And so, and, and Greg, I know I've read about this. I haven't actually done it, but I've seen places where you might, and it, it always seems like they're starting with a red pine stand. Cause I think that's where this work was originally maybe came from with Brian Palak and others. Yeah. I think it kind of originated. You heard that term variable density thinning in right. kind of a intermediate treatment within a red pine stand is where I typically heard about it at first, but now you said, and Tom put it in his question, now you hear more often variable retention harvesting, I think, to reflect that oftentimes there's gap creation and regeneration is part of it. Right, right. And, and so that kind of asks you to say, or that basically puts it into, so what do we need to see within that stand? So I think that's that first element here is how much, you know, like, so you're, you're putting this variability within the stand. And so you have to decide, well, how much variability would I like to see, right? So, so do you have any ideas or do you have any concepts coming from maybe a, a natural stand or a target stand you're looking at? So thinking about red pine, you know, you might be looking at what would a natural red pine stand look like if it were under its natural disturbance regime. So how much open space would there have been? How much how much of that would have taken up by dense red pine? How would there have been different sizes or different ages present? And that may influence actually what you decide to put in for that, for your targets as a part of your marking. Mm -hmm. So setting targets would be maybe a first step. Yep. And then I know that at least there've been a couple examples in Minnesota, and I, I have to admit, I haven't seen any here in Wisconsin, and I'm not familiar with any in uh, Michigan or other places around here, but you actually break, say, a solid stand into blocks and then decide what is your target yeah. condition for that particular block. So that if I have a, uh, it could be rows of a red pine, or it could be, say, a section of a red pine stand that you might have a particular density for this particular area or a certain number of openings that you're going to implement within this. And then when you're done, if you put all of these together, you get that kind of mosaic of this structure within the stand that gives you a little bit closer to that natural variability that you're, you're pursuing. Yeah. I've never marked one like that, but you're talking about that grid method where you just lay out a grid and you have those different densities or whatever within them. Yep. There, I'm a really big fan. Brian Palak and others did a paper about putting, using uh, variable density harvesting or, or variable, uh, this kind of this particular question and saying, how are we going to apply it in a red pine stand? And they had some questions that allowed them to do that. So we will link to that paper uh, in the show notes where you can go and look at a little bit more about this. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's more out there too. I mean, there's, right. there's some papers on from out West on kind of creating this uh, groupy clumpy technique and, um, I don't know how much they, 
go. Uh, <laughs> I notice our producer is laughing at me. Is it clumpy groupy or groupy clumpy? I can never remember. Uh, but I don't know how much they go into detail of Tom's question is how do you implement that? And, uh, and then also how do you recognize it? I know a lot of our foresters have to do monitoring for different programs. And so they have to be able to recognize it. I think maybe having those distinct targets that you mentioned and having a good silvicultural prescription right. that you can refer back to and go, okay, this is what that forester was trying to do is the first step in recognizing it. Yep. And I think that's the intentionality that you mentioned there and kind of saying, why is it this way? Because you can walk into stands where there's tons of variability and there's also other stuff going on, but it could very easily be an abusive harvest or it could be other things that happened. Yeah. So I think that's kind of having it documented is one of those ways you could actually recognize it. So yep. that's a good question. And this is something we need to explore a lot more. Yep. Thanks, Tom. All right, Brad. We also received this season a question from John from Iowa. And John asks, I wonder if you have any success direct seeding white oak. That's a, that's a great question because... You know, it seems like there was a period of time when we saw lots of people doing direct seeding. And I have to admit, I haven't heard about a lot of it being done in the last several years. Have you, Greg? Well, we certainly hit a phase in the 90s in Wisconsin where it became really popular to do hardwood direct seeding. We had a number of foresters have hardwood seed drills custom made. I think some of it is still going on, but that initial popularity has died down somewhat. Yeah. Is that is that how we define a fad? <laughs> a f- a silviculture fad. 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 Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's a fad. It just we hit a period where it was of high interest. I know at least in Wisconsin, and then kind of reforestation, at least of old fields, went down all around. We just, right. CRP went away. We did less of that. Um, but people are still doing it. And when it was a quote unquote fad, uh, we followed up on some of those plantings. Uh, interestingly enough, a colleague and I did a survey of 31 of these direct seeded plantations across multiple counties in Wisconsin, looked at success rates, uh, germination rates, and all of that. And some of those were black walnut, some of them were red oak, some of them had white oak in them. Uh, But the interesting thing, and this gets to John's question, is white oak, the success rate was the most variable. Yeah. So we saw with that particular direct seeding, when it was a component, uh, um, some complete failures where the white oak just never showed up. And you would imagine, because it's, it's got to be a little sense, it's time sensitive too, because with white oak, you're going to see, if you hold on to that acorns too long, you're going to be seeing some germination yeah. going on. Now you're putting it through the machine and putting it into the ground. So yeah, I would imagine I, it's a little more time sensitive with white oak. Yeah, I think that's, that is essentially the big problem is white oak seed is just more touchy to handle. Um, it germinates right away in the fall. It can be germinating on the ground when you pick it up. And so you have that radical sticking out. You can break that off. It's just another avenue for, um, you know, uh, 
decay and issues to enter that seed. And so just storing it and handling it becomes more tricky. And um, if you don't have good handling practices, you could r- ruin that seed before you get it in the ground. Right. And, you know, it seems to me like one of the lessons that I took from the fad, just is just walking around, seeing the sites, thinking about them, is that we put a lot of seed, put a lot of bushels of acorns into particular sites. And I think about, boy, it would have been nice to have put those bushels of acorns into a nursery and actually grown out seedlings and maybe planted higher density. Because like you said, some of that, some of that, we put tons of bushels into these sites and we didn't get much out of it. And so if we'd been able to capitalize on that in a different way, my, my, it seemed to me like what I, from a lot of the sites is that if you're seed limited, so things like, like red oak, white oak, maybe some of the other things that direct seeding sounds really kind of nice. If you have a lot, if you have a lot of seed that you're, it's available to you, but if you don't, then you might want to consider maybe like just higher density in an actual planting. But if you have abundant seed, And I'm thinking here about walnut because it seems like when good walnut year, we you just have it by the it's there's no limit to the seed that you can get for that. That would be the place where I would like walnut. I think it's been fantastic. I think the jury's still out a little bit on on oak in general. Yeah, I don't want to discourage direct seeding. I've seen some really good ones. Uh, I think what you say is right. Seed is a precious commodity, and in years where we don't have a lot of it. We're trying to get our biggest bang for the buck and produce seedlings out of those because we can be much more efficient about it. But where we have abundant seed, uh, I certainly don't want to discourage some direct seeding. And you, as you said, walnut is a very consistent yep. germinator. We saw that through that survey. <laughs> red oak is not bad. We estimated on those plantings, uh, red oak had a 30 to 40% germination rate in the field plantings. Now that doesn't sound great, but it's not bad. And I've seen some really good results from that. The white oak, as I said, was much more variable and much more touchy uh, to deal with. So yeah, I think you have to be cognizant of how much seed is available, how we're using that resource. uh, But certainly um, it can be a successful practice. Yep. Yeah. Great question, John. And that particular survey, uh, we did summarize um, in a publication, and we'll put those in the show notes too. Okay. And finally, our last question, several foresters in Wisconsin have recently been asking, why are my northern hardwood stands not adding basal area, like basal area per year growth as projected? Greg, this is a tricky one. So... We're going to Brad, have to tiptoe on I want this you one, to, right? I want you to take some deep breaths right now. I, you know this gets I me I know jazzed. this one gets you know it. up. Just practice a little uh, deep breathing. Serenity re- Relaxation. Now. Serenity now. Serenity now. <laughs> I, but this is the best. This is, this is fascinating, isn't it? It is. And, uh, and it's not just a single forester to asking this question. Right. Uh, there are a number of people who were into managing Northern hardwoods, now third entry, fourth entry in some of these stands. And a lot of times they're using kind of a general rule of thumb to uh, schedule the next practice, maybe two and a half square feet of basal area per year. And then all of a sudden they go out, the scheduled practice comes up, they look at the stand and go, geez, 
this about the same BA it was last time. Yep. And now what do I do? Because I had this scheduled. So it's, it's a very common observation. Yeah. And I think there are lots of different reasons why we don't see growth as projected. And I think we just have to delve into it because it's never super obvious. So it could be our silviculture isn't, is giving us unintended results, right? So we, and this, this is where I know you have to surrender now. We may be saying, like we maybe think we're doing single tree selection, but if we really look at the fundamental tenets of single tree selection, we're doing more like an intermediate thinning. And so intermediate thinnings over time will produce larger trees, but they may produce one, you know, like basically it may, there may be BA growth uh, ramifications from something like that. So our silviculture would be someplace to explore or, or something, something to explore. I think we'd want to explore whether maybe actually we're seeing, we may not be seeing VA growth, but are we actually seeing a decreased vigor in the trees that are there? So we have to go back and look at the increment of these. And maybe there's something in stand history. Maybe there's something in, you know, sugar maple decline in some of these areas that we might have to think about something and it's something to explore. Well, and I think we touched a little bit on this in Ralph Nyland's episode this season, uh, the green wall where he talked about research um, with his uh, grad student, Sarita, and looking at if we're managing some type of conversion of even to uneven aged, and we're managing small diameter trees that had a period of suppression, maybe we're not seeing the growth rates that we would expect to see because of that period of suppression. Yeah. And that's linking the silviculture and the bigger kind of just putting both of those together. And I I think there's that third reason too, right? And the third reason is, is maybe our inventory. So is it of sufficient um, intensity to capture what's happening on some of these sites? Was the old, was the inventory that we're comparing it to of sufficient intensity to give us sufficient answers? Because if, if you have a super variable stand, and you don't take enough plots, then your answers are going to be all over the board. But some of it too, if you think about that, uh, if you think about that inventory, <clears throat> we're, we tend to use variable radius plots, and there the size of the the size of the tree means that it's there's a higher probability of it being sampled. And so if you don't have an ingrowth of smaller trees, if you're doing these intermediate thinnings we've talked about, you're eliminating the smaller size classes then your trees could be growing. They may be thumping, but, but there's no way you can't count them twice, right? You, you count that tree the first time, it's always going to be 10 in that in the harvest after that, right? In that uh, inventory. And the only way you pick up trees then is to have a tree grow to a larger size in the distance. And you think about with, with, with some of our Northern hardwoods, it takes a long time to grow those trees into a larger size. So if you're only doing that, and your, and your trees are tending to be in those larger sizes, they could still be thumping, but your BA growth may not look that impressive. And depending on, we noticed this in a recent inventory that you and I did um, for the AS project. If you're doing that inventory, especially in the summer, it's hard to pick up trees that are further away, just from a, vis- a visibility standpoint. Right. So I think that's one thing. And then another thing you mentioned, I think is really important is the in-growth. And we talked lots about that in the Northern Hardwood Conference this year, right? About 
difficulty in regeneration, people not seeing good regeneration and recruitment into larger size classes of regeneration in Northern hardwood stands. So if you don't have new cohorts coming into the, your variable radius plot, then um, that's going to be a missing component. Yeah. So this is all, so this is a, uh, maybe this is our fancy way, Greg, of saying that this is a complicated question and it's going to be a complicated answers, but, but this is definitely something we'll be digging into more in the future. Yeah. And I think that uh, Sarita's paper is really interesting too. And I don't know if it's open source, if it is, Haley can put it in the show notes for us. So um, otherwise maybe we can put just the citation. Yeah. Nope. Great questions. Brad, you're right. Those were really good questions and we certainly cannot do them justice, but it really is interesting to see how certain themes come up and hopefully we can get at those themes in future episodes. But thinking back to this season two, what did you like about season two? What was your favorite episode or thing that you learned? So I love, I mean, I've always say it, but I, I love it when we get great questions and and when we get to explore these kind of questions and problems with people. So, you know, I really liked our discussion with uh, Professor Ralph Nyland about the green wall, because it seems to me that that's going to be fundamental to our misunderstanding of Northern hardwood management. Um, so I like the, I love that one. I, and I, I, you know, and I still have my uh, Ralph Nyland action figure. So <laughs> I'm going to, it's pinned to my vest. I'm always going to use it. It's going to be big. Did you work out that draw cord thing where you oh. can pull it and he gives you advice? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's going to be big. So uh, it, I just got to bring that out in the field. I would agree. I think that was my favorite as well. And I just like, especially speaking to people that have that length and breadth of experience. Um, I just always learn a lot of stuff. Yeah. I, I also really liked our episode where we, uh, we met with Jennifer Boyce and Armin Bartz and talked about that collaboration that they have in working in um, at the Black River State Forest here in Wisconsin, where it's not necessarily ecology or production because you can integrate those things. And so I, and just being out, being able to be in the field for a taping and seeing them. And I thought I really enjoyed that episode too. Yeah. We got to get into the field more with the taping. That music can only mean it's time for the Dropbox. The Dropbox is a regular segment where we take your comments, questions, tips, and share them with our listeners. Okay, Brad, you said at the end of season two, we would have the big drawing. So it is the end of the season. What's up? We're having a drawing, Greg. We're, it's, it's big. I mean, you could feel like I'm channeling our our listeners and you can, you can feel the tension. Like they're, they're, they're on pins and needles waiting for this now. And, and, you know, it's, I think they recognize that this is probably the, the, the best thing that can happen to them uh, that they've heard about in a podcast this year. So this is, it's pretty big. I think some of them are going to cry, you know, at the part, at the end of this. So it's, it's big. And you said you'd have a big prize and we do have a big prize. So our grand prize is a, a beautiful, I mean, and actually it is a very, very beautiful uh, UW Stevens Point College of Natural Resources hat 
in camouflage, which puts, makes you fashionable wherever you go in the forestry community, and a $25 gift certificate uh, that you can use at Culver's. Now, mm. Greg, I know you, you like a frozen custard, frozen ice cream, something on a hot day coming back from the field, right? It doesn't have to be a hot day. I'll take a, it any day, any day coming back from the field. Yeah. Well, this is $25 of bliss that we're giving you to basically use however you see fit in a Culver's. <laughs> so it's just, so just pull that truck up to the Culver's window and order $25 of custard. Custard. That's sit right. There and mow it down in the parking lot. Yep. And they will, they will <laughs> probably take pictures. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's big picture. So I'm going to reach into our virtual hat. Dum, da, da, dum. Is the virtual hat. It's well, you so you got rid of the hat that had all the Brad Hutnick paper in it, yeah. It somehow someone said we can't do that, and I said, Well, okay, we won't do that. So, so take two. This is actually take two because that hat was beautiful and it had it had a really nice winner, but we're gonna have another winner this time. (laughs) And so, our winner now, (laughs) winner, winner, chicken dinner is Nathaniel F. from Warrens, Wisconsin. Congratulations, Nathaniel. Uh, You may recall we mentioned that Nathaniel, in one of our early episodes, we mentioned that a little bird had told us that he listened. So he beat out the other people. Congratulations. Your prize will be coming to you shortly. (laughs) Excellent. Yep. And and, and wait for next year's, because next year's is going to be even bigger. That's when we're raffling off the car or, I mean, uh, giving away a car. It could be huge. Oh. It might be a timber sale. <laughs> might be huge. I think that would work. So, but, but that means that everybody still send us your comments, tell us you're listening, do all those things, and we'll put you in the drawing for next year. Excellent. Well, season two is over. All's well that ends well. Doesn't matter to me as long as it ends. Ha ha. I think think we've heard that joke before, but okay. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Silvercast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everybody. It was a great season two. I hope you listen in for season three. And as always, Thanks to our great team, Haley Frater, our producer, Noah LeMade, our IT master, theme music by Paul Frater, and of course, UW Stevens Point's Wisconsin Forestry Center. Take care, everybody.